Support for WPR comes from Explore Monroe County, from the Elroy Sparta Bicycle Trail to the Warren's Cranberry Festival, featuring artist booths and cranberry marsh tours. More at exploremonroecounty.org. More than you know. Support for WPR comes from Analog Ice Cream and Coffee, offering handcrafted cookies, coffees, and Wisconsin ice cream in the heart of Sister Bay. More information is available on Facebook and Instagram at Analog SB. Welcome to another edition of Garden Talk. Hi, Larry Miller here. We're talking about growing vegetables organically today, and our guest is Gary Polarchik. He's the author of the book, The Modern Homesteader, Growing Self-Sufficiency in Any Size Backyard. And he also hosts two very popular YouTube channels on gardening. One's called The Rusted Garden, and the other, My First Vegetable Garden. So... You consider yourself a modern homesteader? You maybe have questions about growing vegetables? And we could talk about fruits as well, and even a little bit about flowers as it relates to the garden, the vegetable garden, I think. Join in. The number to call is 800-642-1234. 1-800-642-1234. Or you could send an email to ideas at wpr.org. Ideas at wpr. Dot org. Gary Polarczyk, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, taking time to be with us today. Good morning. It's great to be here. You've been gardening a long time, uh, and you're kind of like me, I think, in terms of how you got started, but maybe talk about that and, and what draws you to gardening. So uh, I've been gardening pretty nonstop for the last 30 years, but I really got started as a kid in second grade. Um, and it's a good memory. It's my grandfather would come over with a paper bag uh, back then, some tomato plants, an old blue coffee can filled with lime. And he would, you know, show up every year and meet me out back and we would plant tomato plants. And I really didn't know what I was learning, but I was learning that I love watching stuff grow. And that kind of, you know, stuck with me for a lifetime and it kind of has grown into this passion where, you know, this is all I do now. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I think it's a great passion uh, to have. And, you know, you, this, of course, has developed into some YouTube channels uh, as well. I, I was uh, looking, you have over 400, maybe 425,000 sub- subscribers on it. Uh, how did that get started? And all those uh, subscribers, that's surprising to you in any way. It is a little bit. So my background is, as I was a uh, mental health therapist, a licensed clinical social worker at Johns Hopkins, and I, you know, did that full time. And I started the garden back when I got married and I started getting some land. And over the years, it progressed. And in 2011, around then, I decided, you know, what's this YouTube thing? So I decided to make the worst uh, vegetable video ever. (laughs) However, I really enjoyed it. Um, and that kind of got me started, and I kind of dabbled with it for a year or two, um, but that kind of, you know, took that on as a passion, too. And then maybe two years ago, I actually retired as a uh, therapist, and I've been doing the social, social media um, kind of full-time and just kind of enjoying myself. I volunteered a, a garden um, at a farm, actually, and kind of give back that way. But it just kind of took off slowly. So if anybody's starting a YouTube channel, stick with it, you know, find what you like, and over time, you know, slowly but surely, it'll it'll take hold. 
Well, let's talk about your book for a minute. I, I've uh, went through it uh, the last few days, and it's some really cool things in it. Um, but where did the idea for that come from? So um, homesteading is kind of big, let's just say. So the yeah. book really focuses on the modern homestead garden and really trying to incorporate, I don't want to call it a lost art or kind of make it mysterious, but just bringing garden back into our everyday lives. So, yeah, we have to work. We have to earn money. We have to have health insurance. But we can start incorporating the garden in a bigger way, and that's what I really want to encourage people to do, and that's what the book's really about, is trying to keep things simple, keep it real, and then wherever you're at, you know, if it's just a balcony today, maybe a townhouse tomorrow, maybe a quarter acre, you know, years from then, is just get started and learn the skills that you need, grow your own food, um, see if you enjoy it, and if you enjoy it, you know, keep growing. Yeah, and and what about those without a... Uh, on this program, we'll, you will um, have an audience that is very experienced uh, gardeners all the way to just getting started. Uh, for those w- without a lot of gardening experience, what advice do you have? Is it, is it that get slow, uh, start slow part? I think it's to start with what you feel you can manage. So maybe... Start slow, but don't take on, you know, six giant beds or something like that. Maybe start with large containers if that's all you have. If you have some ground, maybe start with a couple of four-by-eight beds. In the beginning, the plants are tiny. They're beautiful. They're easy to grow. But then all of a sudden, <laughs> stuff comes. They take over. The insects come. You know, you know how it is. And the disease show up. So give yourself a year to kind of prepare for what the experience is like and then just add to that. But, you know, slow and and steady. Uh, Slow and steady is good. And and in your book, you've got, I think, 10 chapters, I believe, in the book. I've forgotten now. But it really takes you through the whole range of getting started and then all the way through completion. I I loved, uh, as someone who's done a lot of gardening, I I learned some things um, in in your book for sure, and I enjoyed the photography in the book as well. And just looking at how you have your garden set up gave gave me some ideas. Yeah, I think, I mean, what was kind of cool is the property I live on now, my wife and I just moved here. The kids, you know, grew up. They're living where they live. And we bought two acres. And instead of downsizing, I wanted to upsize. (laughs) So I a pretty much a blank slate. It was just a kind of big rectangle and take everything from 20 years and put it into the design of the garden. And for me, I like not only to grow vegetables and grow flowers and plants, but I like to be able to walk through there with morning coffee and kind of get peace of mind and just kind of reflect. So I designed it with lots of trellises, um, different kinds of beds, all kinds of different styles, more eclectic, but you know, it's just a very peaceful place to be and walk through and listen to nature. We'll give our listeners a chance to join in. If you have a question or a comment uh, for our guest today, Gary Polarchik, I hope you'll join in. Number to call is 1-800-642-1234, 800-642-1234. Or you could email us, the email address, ideas at wpr.org, ideas at wpr.org. Mary in Lodi, Wisconsin, uh, emailed. She has had bad luck trying to grow onions. At least they only get to 
four times at best, I should say. They only get to four times the size of the sets. And she has, has to overwinter them to get to that size. Any advice for her on growing onions? So onions are really tough to grow. You think that they wouldn't be, but they are tough. So the good news about onions is that if, even if you fail, you do get some onion and you can use the greens. So onions bulb up based on how long the sun is in your area during the summer. So you have short day, intermediate, and long day onions. So you have to look that up, too. you got to check out your zone and see where you are for what type of onion seed to plant. Planting onion seeds, in my opinion, is the best way to go. In fact, what I do is I take a whole pack of seeds. I fill up like a um, foil tray, like you might cook a turkey in with seed starting mix, and I just scatter the seeds in there, start them indoors, and then I take them outside and, and peel them apart. And the reason you want to do that is annuals are biennials. So when you're doing plants from seed, they're thinking they're the first-year plant, and they tend to bulb up more. If you're buying the tiny little onions that are dry, like the, the set sometimes, sometimes they already think they're second-year onions, and they don't necessarily do as good. But if I was going to pick the key thing is if you want to make sure you match the onion variety to the amount of summer sun that you get, the length of the, the days in the summer. Yeah, that's uh, good advice. And we're, uh, Wisconsin has uh, three zones, uh, northern uh, three, four, and five are our growing zones here in the state. And I imagine, uh, what are you, where you are? Maybe a se seven, maybe? Yeah, well, I'm zone seven. And it, it gets confusing because you have the gardening zones, like the numbers that we're talking about. But then on a whole separate thing is onion zone. So it's a, it's a different chart to look on. So you guys probably have longer days. I'm not sure. Yeah. But it, it, it can be very confusing. And when you're buying those onions, you know, as sets or even bunches in stores, you, you never sometimes know what they are. They just call them red onions, white onions, and yellow onions. So you do want to find that variety out and match it to your onion growing zone. Uh, Gary Polarczyk, our guest today. Again, you can join in 800-642-1234. Uh, and you do say that it doesn't matter what size your your garden or your yard is. You can grow food, and you give us some good examples of that in the book. But talk about that a bit, about how someone with a small yard or what they can do in that yard. Yes, yeah, so you don't have to have sort of you know, a massive homestead. And that was the whole idea behind the modern homestead garden was to get the mentality of growing food that you're going to incorporate more into your day-to-day -day life and be less dependent on the grocery store. So you can start with like one cherry tomato plant, one zucchini plant, green beans. And those are some, you know, nice growing warm crops that can be planted now. Um, you don't need a lot of space. You can just make a simple uh, row about three feet wide, eight, 10 feet long, right in the ground. You don't need, you know, any kind of wood or anything to build a raised bed and you can get them planted. And I think what happens is you say, well, you know what, I'm getting all this off of my cherry tomato plant and it's still going and I've got, you know, hundreds of tomatoes and the zucchini are getting bigger, you know, than my arm because they grow so fast. And that's where you kind of start is what size do you have in the yard and then kind of pick what your favorite vegetables are or if you're not really sure, you know, the standard variety is tomatoes, peppers, 
Um, squash, zucchini, I recommend green beans because they grow so well. And they can be grown in a small footprint or even in, in a container. Um, and, and really kind of start there. You also have multiple seasons. But if you're just getting started, when the summer sun is getting into the 70s and 80s and the nights are staying in the 50s and 60s, those summer crops really, really take off. And they're really rewarding, I think, for new gardeners. Yeah. Uh, let's take a call. Lottie in Silver Lake. Uh, thank you for calling. What's on your mind? Yeah, I've got a question on container gardening. I try container garden. Uh, so I'm wondering the best container size for growing tomatoes uh, on a deck, like uh, cherry tomatoes or regular tomatoes and green peppers. Um, I'm wondering a, a good container size for container gardening. Okay. So let's start with peppers. Peppers love to be planted closely together. So in a five-gallon container, just like a pickle bucket you might find at at a restaurant or one of those paint buckets, you can actually grow two peppers in a five-gallon container. And just make sure you have drainage holes in there. So that's one way to actually increase the production by growing two plants in a five-gallon container you know, to a 10-gallon container for peppers. That's going to work. For tomatoes, I've grown in small in a container as small as five gallons, but you just have to water so much. So I now recommend about a 20-gallon container for an indeterminate type tomato. And for people that don't know what that is, that would be your cherry tomato type or any tomato plant that grows and grows and grows, the ones that get six, seven, and eight feet tall. The problem is, and you want a bigger container than you think, is because the root system will fill up an entire container. And if you miss watering just one time, you're going to damage the plant root system, and that damages the plant. So it's a little bit based on how hot your summers get, but to err on the size of caution, I now recommend a 20-gallon container for one indeterminate-type tomato, and that kind of works the best. And you can adjust. You know, if you get some skills, you can kind of cut it down to maybe a 15-gallon container or a 10-gallon container, but if you're just getting started, a bigger container is better. Thank you, Lottie, uh, for calling. Appreciate it. Gary Pilarczyk, our guest today, his book, The Modern Homesteader, Growing Self-Sufficiency in Any Size Backyard. Tyler Ditter, our engineer today. Jill Nadeau's our producer. You're listening to Garden Talk. I'm Larry Mueller for the Ideas Network. Glad to have, you, uh, to have you here for this edition of Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Our guest today, Gary Polarchik, his book, The Modern Homesteader, Growing Self-Sufficiency in Any Size uh, Backyard. Join in with your questions at 1-800-642-1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. And let's turn to Dave in Appleton next. Hi, Dave. Hi. Hey, thanks for taking my call. So I've got a question on fruit trees. I wanted to buy organic, but I ended up with non-GMO because I was told if your fruit trees or any plant is a non-GMO plant and you treat it organically for two to five years or whatever it was, then it could be considered organic because any chemicals that were used in the non-GMO tree would end up being organic because of the way you grew it yeah so i mean there is is truth to that organic gardening kind of got really commercialized so there's a lot of information out there and organic gardening is really about sourcing resources from your your garden local area like compost and stuff like that 
So generally speaking, say you planted a fruit tree and you use, um, you know, a, a chemical fertilizer used by a person or created by a person like miracle Grow or something. That won't hurt your tree. That's not going to hurt you. But you do have to wait technically a couple of years for it to be deemed an organic tree, an organic garden. So if you do make that switch to organic fertilizers and you're taking care of your plants that way, over a two-year period, you can consider your soil organic, and therefore the tree is, is pretty good. And very rarely are you going to find a, a GMO tree. There, there's not that many genetically modified um, plants out there. So coming into a nursery or something like that, you're going to be buying probably just a fruit tree that's grafted onto a rootstock, and they're perfectly safe, and there's nothing to worry about when you're buying those. Dave, thank you uh, very much uh, for calling. John in Oconomowoc will turn to you now. Hi, John. Hi, how's it going today? Good, appreciate the call. Yeah, I got red raspberries, and I've probably been growing them for close to four years, and I think I would get a real good crop one of these years, but never do. I don't know if I'm pruning them wrong or cutting them back wrong or what's going on. Can you give me a heads up on that? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's hard without me kind of seeing what's going on. I have two raspberry patches in my property, and one was closer to where runoff comes, and I have a drainage area, and that continually damp soil actually killed off some of them, and the production was really bad. Where it stayed drier, um, kind of damp, but drier, and stuff drained really well, those raspberries are going crazy. So sometimes it can be the amount of water that is sitting in the root system. So I don't know if that might be the issue. Um, the other thing you can look at is giving them, you know, a better fertilizing of nitrogen, maybe with fish emulsion or another organic water soluble at the beginning of the year, that can help them too. If your plants are looking green and they're looking lush and they're just not producing, sometimes it also can be the variety. Sometimes the variety isn't the best or they need some sort of cross-pollination, two different varieties in there. Um, I don't think it would be due to your pruning. Um, usually raspberries will, you know, cane up, and then the second year they get raspberries on there. So it'd be really hard for you to kind of damage them by, by pruning. Um, I mean, I kind of would start with that. I wish I could be a little more specific for you. Yeah, but that, uh, all, all those points make uh, really good sense to me. Would shade or sun have a, a role in that? So, I mean, they can manage okay in the shade because they often grow along the, uh, the um, you know, wood line. But they do need to get, you know, I think a good six hours of sun or broken up sun coming in there. I have, you know, both of mine kind of that were the experiment are in full sun um, and they do okay. And then I also have some wild, you know, raspberries on the shadier side of my woods and they do okay too. Um, you know, I would, yeah. I yeah. would probably – recommend a different variety of, of raspberries too. If you've given it four years, maybe try a different variety. Good luck, John. Thank you so much uh, for calling. Uh, appreciate your call. You can join in to 800-642-1234 or send us an email to ideas at wpr.org. How about selecting a spot for uh, the garden for the new person who say, okay, I've I just bought this uh, house, and or I'm renting this house now. Uh, it's new. How do I pick the best spot for a garden? So that, that's a really good question because it all starts with sunlight. And the best way to really do it 
is to, you know, put some notes in your phone or write on a piece of paper. Go out at 8 a.m., see where there is sun, like the direct sun, the sun, you know, hitting that spot. And then you go out at 8, 10, 12 p.m., 2 p.m., 4 p.m., and you're really looking for the spot that's going to get eight hours or the most possible sun in your space, and that's where you want your garden to be. There's a lot of confusion between partial sun and partial shade, like what does that mean, or full sun or some sun. So it gets confusing. Eight hours is a great guideline to be able to grow just about all the vegetables that you want. And then once the site is selected, you use you use a lot of container containers. You I, I I I like how you've got rows of containers in your mm-hmm. property. Talk about that a little bit. So I have, I mean, I have I use I repurpose like animal feed containers too. So those containers have bottoms, but they have drainage. But then I use a lot of open bottom can. Um, kind of raised beds and I will organize them in a straight row with a four foot walking path down the middle. This way I can walk a wheelbarrow up and down the middle in a four feet area. And then I can tend to everything on my right and left side. And with that four foot space, I put cattle paddle in there. Like I make these eight foot arches so I can grow cucumbers up them. And as I'm walking through the path, I'm able to harvest cucumbers or beans right off of, of the trellis. But it's really based on, on what you like, what look you like. I mean, you can just do, you know, earth and do earth rows. You can do a combination of raised beds. Um, you can do all kinds of different things. And I encourage people to kind of look around, see what style they like, um, and just be creative out there. And, you know, if you create something you don't like, don't be afraid to move it and change it the next year. Yeah, I was watching one of your uh, YouTubes on your uh, on the uh, your site itself, and I was struck by how many different things that you were able to purchase or or just find that <laughs> for a lot less money than if you went right straight to the garden center, for example. Yeah, it's really important. Um, like when you go to the big box stores or something like that, if you walk right to the garden center, you're going to pay more for a product. So like a fire ring for burning fire is just a you know metal ring, no bottom or something like that. If you buy that, it's a lot less expensive if you go to the garden center and buy a metal ring for a raised bed. And sometimes it's almost twice as much money buying that way. So kind of looking around and seeing what you can use. I also, for trellises, I go to the uh, wire rack section of, you know, those big box stores, and I buy those wire closet racks. It can be 6 feet, 8 feet, 10 feet, even 12 feet tall, depending where you buy them. They're not expensive and not as expensive, I should say. And I use them for my trellising. If I go and buy trellises, I'm paying two or three times, you know, more because it's a <laughs> So repurposing is just a great way to save a lot of money. Oh, it, it is indeed. Shelly in Reeseville will give you a chance. Hi, Shelly. Hi. What's so I was wondering, can I plant cucumbers, different varieties, like in hills right right next to each other, or will they do they cross-pollinate? So you can absolutely do that. So when a vegetable cross-pollinates, you don't see the new variety, so you collect the seeds this year and then plant again next year. So you're not going to – you'll get cross-pollination happening, but you're going to get a cucumber in the form of, you know – whatever that vine is this year. But then the seeds themselves at the end of the year will have that cross, and then you might get, you know, a variation 
the following year. So you can put whatever you want next to each other and they can cross pollinate, but it's not going to change the taste or anything with your, your cucumber plants. Shelly, there you go. Thank you so much uh, for calling. Appreciate your call. Back to onions for a minute. Uh, Todd in La Crosse emailed that for Wisconsin, we want to plant long day onions only, long day. Uh, and he says, your advice to not grow from sets is excellent. They will not develop into a big onion. And he recommends for here, for seeds, use long day onions only and plant in uh, early February under lights. If you don't want to grow from seed, you should be able to buy a bundle uh, plants of uh, plants in the spring if there's a good garden center or seed and feed store near you. Yeah, that's good advice. And what can be a little bit confusing is the bundle he's talking about are just like a bunch of baby onions you would be growing yourself. So they call it a bunch. And it might be 50 or 100 little tiny onions that they look like they just pulled out of the uh, seed starting mix bundled together. They may be a little bit dry and beat up, but you just put them into the ground, water them in, and they're going to come to life and grow well. Uh, <laughs> Sue emailed to ask what your favorite organic fertilizer is and wonders what you think about malorganite. So malorganite I don't really use, so I don't have an opinion either way. I've kind of simplified things. If, it, if people use it and it works and it's budget-friendly, go ahead and add it in there. What I use predominantly right now is fish emulsion. Um, any brand, the, the, the NP and K may vary, but that's a great water-soluble fertilizer fish emulsion. However, it smells. I like yeah. the smell. I'm kind of odd, I guess, that way. Reminds me of being at the bay with the family on family vacations and stuff like that. But if you have a problem with the odor, um, AgroThrive is a product I've been using for two years now. That's water-soluble. That's organic. That works really well. Um, those are the two that I would recommend. Um, water-soluble fertilizer is a must, I think, for all gardeners, especially new gardeners. I would go the water-soluble route and then worry about the granular fertilizers, the, the slow-release stuff later um, when it's more budget-friendly or you learn a little bit more about it. I use uh, fish emulsion for my, uh, for my uh, lime tree, and it works really, really well. <laughs> Every watering, yeah, I, every watering, uh, the, uh, the the uh, limey gets some uh, fish emulsion too. I always say, make sure you don't water your garden with fish emulsion the day before a barbecue. Let it <laughs> let it let it sit for two days before you have people over. <laughs> Cindy in Dodgeville, it's your turn. Hi, Cindy. Hi there. I um well, I just wanted to call in and share just a, a, sh a couple of brief um, memories over the years. I grew up in New Jersey and I was surrounded by Italian families and they knew how to garden for what they wanted, which was pasta sauce and, um, <laughs> and their, and their garlic and tomatoes and basil and parsley. And they would have grapes and that kind of triggered in me uh, passion. And now here I am living in Dodgeville um, here in Wisconsin and, I have learned over the years that as much as when I first started, I wanted to grow everything and pickle everything, um, what I've learned now is to focus on the vegetables that I know I will use fresh and I will can and cherish and then grow less of the things that are more seasonal that, you know, that are things that will be more perishable 
and not as um, tasty in the wintertime. Yeah. And as well, as of course, trying to keep a nice supply of winter squash on so that I can eat that seasonal way throughout the year. Hmm. Nice thinking there, Sandy, I think. What do you think, Gary? Yeah, I think that's a great way to go. I actually grew up in a garden state, so I'm from South Jersey. My my great-grandparents were Italian, so we had the grapes. Um, we had uh, Roma tomatoes and basil and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's wonderful advice is kind of pick, you know, something to start with. In the beginning, you're not going to be sure, but don't feel like you got to grow it all. Grow what you love. Grow what you can use. Grow what you're going to can and want to have in the winter. I make tons and tons of tomato sauce. Um, I just love it. So winter, I just I actually freeze it. So I just pull out a bag of tomato sauce. It's you know garden fresh in my opinion, and it, it kind of keeps kind of keeps the garden going. You know, mid January. Cindy, thank you so much for calling. Yeah, my my mom used to. Uh, it, uh, we had um, a lot of sweet corn in our, um, well, on our property. And so my mom would freeze the sweet corn, and I was surprised at how good. I think she blanched it, and then she froze it or something. And uh, it always tasted much better. It was close to what you would get in the summer. That is something new to me. I'm going to actually have to try that. So it was a whole ear of corn. Well, no, she'd uh, she would uh, knock the kernels off. <laughs> All right, that makes sense too. But that's yeah. I I was really uh, I, I'm really pleased to get the, those bags of corn from her from uh, for the freezer and and uh, have them and you know you get a bag out and and uh, you heat it up and you throw in a little salt and pepper and maybe a touch of butter and and there you go and it's so so good well um the um, number to call by the way 1-800-642-1234 or you could email us email address ideas at wpr.org so we've got containers we've got raised beds we've got earth beds maybe you could talk about the pros and cons of each type you you did mention a bit about containers in terms of watering but discuss that a little bit so the containers are nice because they're convenient you can keep them close to the house you don't need a lot of space you just need a deck and some sunshine um they're great to pull in closer to the house if you have deer and you have rabbits and stuff like that. The hard part is is that when you put in a tiny tomato plant or a cucumber plant, they look great in a little, <laughs> you know, pot as small as a cup, but they get so big and that root system gets massive and they actually suck the life and water out of a container come early July, like within a day. Well, the moisture within a day, fertilizer over a week. And you really have to stay up on it. So the biggest challenge with containers is matching the container size to what the plant is going to become and then staying up on the watering. And then you really have to keep the fertilizing going um, almost weekly, every seven to 10 days, more so when the plants are bigger. So that is a challenge. Um, But the benefit is having it close to you and being able to garden maybe where you have poor soil and all the other things that I was talking about. The extent, I, oh, say, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. 
Well, I'm just going to, in, in uh, relation to that, uh, I had an extension horticulturist here in Wisconsin was telling me she really likes uh, Red Robin, the variety Red Robin, uh, for a small uh, tomato that works really well in a container. She said you get really nice, big, uh, round um, tomatoes, and you can get by in a fairly small space with them. I, I don't know if you've ever used Red Robin or not. It's a newer variety. Yeah. yeah, I like them. I've grown them before, and I p- probably have um, a video tour on it on d- different dwarf tomatoes. And a lot of times those tomatoes are determinate varieties, so they get to a set height. Some of them may only get 12 inches big, and they're more cherry type. And then you can get tomatoes that will be maybe two or three feet tall. So you have that determinate variety tomato plant that gets to a set height flowers and produces fruit over a short period and those are better suited for the container like you were talking about the indeterminate types are the ones that keep growing six eight ten feet tall and they don't really die until frost comes or disease takes them so if you're growing in those indeterminate if you're growing the indeterminate type tomatoes you need that bigger 20 gallon container that i was talking about but these determinate types you can grow them you know 10 gallons for sure and you know get a, a nice harvest off of them yeah absolutely you know, yeah, and the raised beds, and I don't. I think there's a lot of benefit to them. I don't really see a negative to them. So the raised bed is beautiful because the bottom is open. I usually build my raised beds, and anytime you build a raised bed, you want it to be not more than four feet wide because generally speaking, our arms are two feet, so we can walk around the rectangle or square, and our two feet worth of arm will reach in and be able to tend everything inside of that raised bed. So I make my raised beds four feet by four feet, four feet by six feet, four feet by eight feet. I like them because you can put all your resources right into the raised bed. You can save money that way. You don't have to walk on it. You don't even have to turn the soil once you get your bed set up. So you can just put all the good resources right in the middle. And then for care, you can mulch around it, or if you have grass growing around it, you can just take a weed eater right up to the wood edge and kind of whack it down, and you just have a nice you know, rectangle for your growing purposes. Um, that's what I recommend the most. Now, it's more expensive, and I'm always kind of concerned about that. If you don't have the money to buy containers or raise beds, really growing in the earth is the way it started, <laughs> and it worked, it worked really well. So don't be afraid just to do the basics. It works. Joe and Rhinelander, uh, your turn. Hi, Joe. I, I've got a, uh, you mentioned about putting up corn, and I've got a recipe for making cream corn that is incredibly good. A uh, good friend of mine sells corn in Rhinelander, so I pick up four or five dozen uh, in the summer. And you uh, you put the cob on end and use a serrated knife to cut just the very tip off the uh, kernel and, uh, you know, cut those into a bowl and then take a... Uh, a knife, uh, like a butter knife, and squish the rest of the juices out of the off of the cob. So you end up with a, a creamed corn um, in the big bowl. You know, if you do two or three dozen at a time, uh, put that on the stove and add a stick of butter. And uh, we always say you cook it until it changes color, <laughs> turns from gold to yellow or yellow to gold and then cool it off and put it in Ziploc bags. And it is incredibly good. Uh, when we got the recipe, it was from a lady down in uh, Atlanta. 
and she grew up in Tennessee, and that when they had company, they would serve that for desserts. You know, people come over for an evening, they'd, they'd have it for uh, an evening snack. Oh, that's a great story, Joe. Uh, Gary, with, that sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, I mean, it sounds really sweet, especially with the butter in there. But I was just thinking, like, I mean, as a dessert, that'd be great on a sponge cake. Or I, I can't even see myself mixing that into uh, mashed potatoes when I pull potatoes out of the garden. But so many uses just to get that sweetness on, you know, different things. Oh, yeah. Joe, thanks a lot for that. So a stick of butter and you just cut the ends of the corn off and then squish the juice right into the, <laughs> the pot. There you go. Appreciate that. Well, Jane in uh, Pleasant Prairie, let's go to you. Hi, Jane. Hi. Say, I have a question about growing basil. I just never have good luck with basil. I grow it in a pot, and either it just doesn't seem to grow well. Are there any suggestions on growing basil? Sure. Let me ask you a couple questions. Are you planting seeds, or are you buying a plant? I'm buying the plant. So... Stop buying a plant, and I'll tell you why. So when you go to the big box stores or even to, you know, a a better nursery, the basil plants have been sitting in that small container for a long time, and you don't know how long they've been growing, and their root system is bound. So when they dry out or they get warm, they're going to be thinking, you know, there's a problem, and they're going to try and go to a flower. So what I think might happen is you put them into your pot, they don't really thrive and get bigger, and you don't get the lush leaves. You get more flower spikes, maybe. Those plants are trying to flower. The best way to grow basil, and if you want, buy one plant, you know, try and get it early. Put that plant into the pot like you're doing, but also buy some basil seed and sprinkle some seeds around that and just put them about a quarter inch into the soil. Those seeds will germinate. They will take off when it's warm, and you will have amazing basil. If your plant survives and it's going, you'll be able to harvest that while you're waiting for the basil, you know, seeds to germinate. But I really recommend people not buying the plants because a lot of times they just don't thrive in the pot. They flower real quickly. They don't take off. And it's just because you just don't know how long they've been sitting out there. So seeds are best. There you go, Jane. Thank you so much uh, for calling. Appreciate your call. You can join in, too. Number to call, 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. Uh, Gary Polarczyk, our guest, author of The Modern Homesteader, Growing Self-Sufficiency in Any Size Backyard. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here. I just wanted to mention, uh, before we go back to our topic, our next book club show is coming up on Thursday of this coming week, and we'll be talking with the author of South Luck. That's the name of the book. Jim Gould is the author from Hudson, Wisconsin. Kind of a coming-of-age story. It takes place on a farm in rural northwestern Wisconsin in about 1945, thereabouts. Hope you can join us with your thoughts and questions about the book. That's Thursday, January 23rd from 11 to noon. I'm about two-thirds of the way through it, and it's, it's really a fun read. South of Luck by Jim Gould. Well, our guest today, Gary Polarczyk, has lots of good advice for you about your garden. 
and organic solutions to your garden. I hope you'll join in. The number to call is 1-800-642-1234, or you can email us to ideas at wpr.org. Give a call. We'll get you on pretty quickly. Let's go to Stella in Sturgeon Bay next. Hi, Stella. Hi. Um, there were a couple things I wanted to share. The first one is um, we built uh, raised beds. Um, our, our backyard is very wet, so we had we had to have raised beds. And um, we built we, the first two that we built were four feet wide by two feet high by forty feet long. Oh my goodness! Um, yeah, Good and. And we built them as close as close as we could to our prop to one of our property lines, and the the neighbor had planted a cedar hedge along along that property line. So, having had experience of cedar roots growing into our compost pile, our original compost pile, we did not want them to invade the raised bed. Um, so, what we did was we lined it with a heavy duty pond liner. And put an overflow valve at each end, um, about halfway up, the 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 height of it, about a foot up. Mm-hmm. Filled filled the the bed for about um, two thirds or three quarters full with sand, with washed river sand, and then composted soil on top, and. We did we did that to keep the cedar roots out, but and it turned out that we ended up making gig, two gigantic uh, self-watering pots, self-watering mm-hmm. raised beds, because the rain that falls onto it goes down into the sand and is stored there in the reservoir, and the roots of the plants will grow down and tap it, and we virtually don't ever have to we virtually never have to water those beds. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> what do you think, Gary? That's pretty cool. Yeah, so that that was an, an accidental surprise. That's a wonderful design, and that's the right way to do it because by putting that cap up a couple of inches or however far you said, you do create that wonderful water reserve, and the sand is nice and compact and holds the water, and the roots like it, and you just have a great <laughs> self-contained watering system. Nice job. Stella, do you get uh, pretty good luck with the vegetables? Oh yeah, <laughs> really good luck. Um, the overflow valves keep the, keep them from from getting flooded. If there's if there's a lot of rain, then then excess can can go out. But but um, it usually doesn't happen. That usually doesn't happen. Um, well, and the other the other thing was a tip that we that I discovered um, just accidentally. I, I, it was it was late in the summer and there was a flood of tomatoes and I was trying to get them I was trying to freeze you know to, to preserve some of them and I put a bunch of of tomatoes um, romas and others about that size into a Ziploc freezer bag and sucked the air out and and uh, sealed them up I just I just picked them rinsed them off. Um, I think I dried them. I think I put them in. Yeah, I put them in dry. And then when we wanted to use them, um, they're they'll, they're only good for cooking. They're not good for like slicing on a on a salad sure. because they, they turn to mush. But 
you don't have to you don't have to worry about peeling them because you take them out you just run them under under water warm water cool water just for you know a few seconds and just gently rub and the skin just pops right off <laughs> oh, Stella thank you uh, sounds like a good idea to me Gary yeah, I think you, because the, the tomato's still frozen, so that hot water you're just peeling off the um, the skin. That's a wonderful idea. I didn't I didn't think of that. One of the hard things to do is is really preserve food in the freezer is the best way. Especially what she just described is it's just a great way to do it. You can you know buy an extra freezer, save yourself money going out buying tomatoes, and your garden frozen tomatoes are going to taste so much better than the tomatoes that get transported to a grocery store. Thank you so much for those tips. Appreciate it. Someone else wondered, uh, what are your favorite seed sources? We've been talking seeds a lot. Where do you go? So, I mean, well, my favorite seed source would be our seed shop because I have one. Um, But it's not (laughs) for myself. Um, I work with uh, a company called Bentley Seeds. They're a wonderful company. What's most important, I think, and Bentley Seeds is a smaller company, is I really recommend supporting the smaller mom-and-pop companies. Lots of seeds sometimes come from the same sources. Some seed companies grow their own uh, grow their own vegetables to collect seeds. But kind of really research something local and, you know, find a company you just like and, and support a smaller company. Um, seeds usually all do pretty good. You know, it's very rare to get a, you know, a packet of seeds that isn't, isn't going to work out for you. Let's go to Sharon in Berlin. Sharon, thank you for calling. Uh, hi. I just heard your the lady's comment on uh, uh, freezing her tomatoes. Yeah. And uh, Ruth Stout did that years ago, like you know Ruth Stout. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, anyway, uh, I don't believe she washed them. She wiped them off, dusted the dirt off, put them in the bag, and uh, <clears throat> froze them. And then you just can take them out. You, you, when you cook them, the skins come off, and you use them in your hot dishes or chili. Uh, or it's just so simple. Yeah. Sharon, a good point. I think you're right. I don't think Ruth uh, did wash them off. Uh, Gary, are you familiar with Ruth Stout? This is from years back. No, I don't recognize the name. Well, sometime uh, go online and just type up a video, Ruth Stout's Garden. All right, I'll check it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, she uh, she had a very unconventional way of uh, gardening, or some very unconventional. She just uh, she had uh, uh, well, I'll I'll just tell you to go ahead and look, and and don't forget Ruth Stout, and it's you know Stout as in Stout, Ruth Stout's garden. Check that out. Uh, you're I wanted gonna, to add. Yeah, go ahead. So we were talking a little bit about peeling the Roma tomatoes. So I think it's actually in in the book is is the recipe that I use. But I take um, any kind of tomato, Roma type, big beefsteak, cherry tomatoes, skin, seeds, and all, and I put them into a pot, chop them up and stuff like that, and then I I boil it down. So you want to reduce the boiling pot of tomatoes down by at least two-thirds when you're making a sauce. I just take an immersion blender, one of those hand blenders you can just sink right into your hot stock, and I just puree everything, skin, seeds, and all, and it turns out really, really well. I call it a rustic tomato sauce, but 
no skin peeling, no de-seeding, nothing like that. And then sometimes I'll throw in eggplant if it's available or maybe some zucchini and it's more of a kind of vegetable sauce. But it's a great quick way to process your vegetables. And then I let it cool, put it into uh, freezer bags, and I freeze it. Just in case people have not tried to preserve food before, there's all kinds of different ways, and I just encourage people to give it a try. Yeah, absolutely. Some very good advice. Paul and Almina, your turn. Hi, Paul. Hello. Um, Mine's a little off from the vegetable question, but I cleaned out a windbreak and pine or spruce windbreak and um, ran all of the sticks, needles, everything that was underneath there through a a chopper and um, have had that stuff set for a year now. I don't see any weeds growing in it, but I'm wondering what can and can't I use that on for kind of a mulch? So if it's been a year and it's pretty well broken down, you can use it certainly for a mulch. Now, sometimes you have wood chips, which are big chunks of wood and stuff like that. So that kind of stuff, you don't want to get it mixed and incorporated into your garden soil four, six, six, eight inches deep. You can buy shredded hardwood, which is more like fine strands. And over a year, when using that as a mulch in your garden, it breaks down. You can actually mix that into your garden. And the reason being is when you have big wood chunks in your garden depth, like four inches, six inches deep, it's going to want to decompose. And the microbes take nitrogen from the surrounding area, and they take it from your plants. So if your mulch looks pretty well broken down and it's been kind of sitting there and and kind of aging and it's not big chunks, certainly, one, use it as any kind of um, mulch. And if it's fine enough, you can just kind of let it sit there and, and earthworms and, and stuff will just start pulling it into the earth and you can kind of mix it into that top top portion. But that's really good stuff. I mean, I recommend people really do shred leaves, shred twigs, and, and try and go back to the, in my opinion, the truest term of organic and really using the resources around your property, friends, neighbors, and that's you know, grass clippings, leaves, and all that kind of stuff, and, and just make great mulch and also make great compost. Yeah, makes good sense. Um, Paul, go ahead and use it. <laughs> Thanks very much for uh, calling. Uh, appreciate your call. Um, thoughts on fertilizer? Well, biggest thought is, and I, I kind of chuckle when I say this, if I did every video with just use compost, I wouldn't be helping a lot of people because not everybody can get compost or they can make it. But that's why I like to start now. If you can, you know, save your grass clippings where you've not sprayed any weed eater or any uh, weed and feed or any chemicals on your lawn, that's great. Leaves are great. So first thing, if you're able to compost, start composting. That's the best stuff. After that, any organic granular fertilizer whatever is on sale. What I mean by that is when you're buying the granular fertilizers, those are the slow release. They're dry, and that's what you mix into the planting hole of your plants, so that's what you scatter on the surface. A lot of times they're the same ingredients. They're like chicken manure, blood meal, bone meal, etc. So kind of compare ingredients so that you're not spending a lot of money for fancy packaging and labeling. Our guest today, Gary Polarczyk, he is the author of the book, The Modern Homesteader, Growing Self-Sufficiency in Any Size Backyard. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio.
Great to have you with us for this edition of Garden Talk. Larry Mueller here with my guest, Gary Polarchik. He is the author of the book, The Modern Homesteader, Growing Self-Sufficiency in Any Size Backyard. He also hosts uh, two popular YouTube channels on gardening. One's called The Rusted Garden and the other, My First Vegetable Garden. So how are your vegetables doing this year? What questions do you have? Maybe about fruits or vegetables? I'll probably cover some flowers too as it relates to the vegetable garden. Number to call 1-800-642-1234 or send us an email to ideas at wpr.org. Ideas at wpr.org. And uh, Gary, let's take another call. Bob in Lancaster, thanks for waiting. What's on your mind? Well, last uh, summer I planted three dwarf apple trees uh, and I was careful. I mulched them and gave them water, and they looked great in the fall. And none of them survived the winter. And I wondered if that could be because there was there wasn't there wasn't snow cover, and it got down to minus 18 for three days in a row last January. So it was just sudden death syndrome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, apple trees can take a freeze, but I think you're right. It's it's sometimes when you have those consecutive deep negative temperatures, you get the deep freeze into the soil line. So I'm not sure exactly what happened, but that's absolutely, absolutely what can happen. So, what, you know, sometimes you get, you know, 20 degrees Fahrenheit, 18 degrees Fahrenheit, and you're bouncing around and then you might get that minus. But when you get consecutive days, it can be damaging, to, especially to new fruit trees. They just don't have a massive root system that's spread out everywhere. They're all in that little ball, and they can be damaged. Yeah. There you go, Bob. It might be that, well, let's see, in one year, I don't know, sometimes uh, where you purchase them from, they may have, there may be a chance to get a, a, a new ones for maybe not for free, but for a reduced price. You might want to check back with the uh, where you purchase those uh, dwarf apple trees. It worth a worth a call anyway or an email. Thanks for calling. Uh, Mary and Ashland, on to you now. Hi, Mary. Thank you. I have been told and I've read that rosemary is extremely easy to grow. Couldn't prove it by me. I've tried plants. I've tried cuttings. I can't get it to grow for nothing. Hmm. So it's easy to grow if you've got the right conditions, which, you know, it just makes me chuckle because uh, I can struggle with, with rosemary. Here in Maryland, we're on the border of whether or not it can overwinter, and I'm not sure you're even getting it to that point. But it likes heat, really well-draining soil. It doesn't like to stay soggy. It almost likes sometimes, you know, drying out a little bit um, soil-wise. Are you having... I don't know if you have trouble with it overwintering or you just can't get it to establish. Um, if you can't get it to establish, I might just try creating a soil in the container that just drains better and see if that's going to work out for you to start. Yeah. That and nothing wants. I swear, I don't think rosemary likes me. <laughs> and did you try yeah, it in the I, ground too? Yep. And I've got some. I start. I got some pieces that I put into a raised bed, 
It's been about two weeks. They're still alive, but just barely. <laughs> I I don't know. I'll, I'll hope the best for you, though. Raised bed's a good way to go because that will drain. Yeah, that's uh, that's for sure. Well, uh, here's hoping. Not not sure what happened there, Mary, but uh, let's hope those kind of hang on and you get yourself some rosemary. Oh, my goodness me. John in Berlin emailed, and he wondered uh, what you think of of uh, pruning. Uh, let's see, where what was his question? Pruning tomatoes. So determinate varieties, the ones that we kind of talked about that get to a set height, flower, and fruit, I don't prune those. You want to keep all the plant parts on your determinate varieties. Indeterminate varieties, I do some pruning. Um, there's no real must to having to prune a tomato plant. The reason you prune is because they can get so big. So you're reducing the size of the growth so that you can manage the plant. If you're in a zone where you have more humidity, more disease, um, sometimes you want to prune that plant a little bit smaller. When we talk about suckers, that's usually what they prune out. That's the plant that grows in the joint of the stem and leaf. It's a little bit hard to describe, you know, in this format. But they will turn into production stems where they will flower and produce fruit. So it's kind of up to the, the gardener. If you want to reduce the size so you manage it better, and sometimes you get bigger tomatoes and you get a good harvest, that's, that works. Or if you want to just let everything go, you're going to get more tomatoes, maybe not as big because there's so much energy growing to all the tomatoes. But it's really a choice, you know, based on how you can manage the size of the plant. Joan emailed to suggest uh, that a caller try Japanese eggplant, or you even, uh, the thin earlier variety. Uh, and uh, it is called Early Girl. It's a Japanese eggplant called Early Girl. It's better uh, than, uh, um, uh, let's see. Well, now Early Girl is a tomato. So I'm gonna right. I'm gonna back up here because I know it's tomato. I, I think there were two comments. Try the uh, Japanese eggplant, the thin early variety, and then early girl. She likes better than um, than Roma or or big boy. Just add your cheese; uh, it, it's right. the best. Yeah, I actually, I mean, I think that was enough to kind of answer a question. I think it's pronounced ichiban. That's the Japanese really thin. It's kind of like a banana shape, but it's purple. That is a very prolific and, and productive eggplant. Um, and they do really, really well. And I actually cut them up just like you would slice up a banana, and I kind of stir fry them, and they work really, really well. And the early girls are wonderful tomatoes. They're not quite baseball size, but they're a good-sized tomato, really productive, disease-resistant, does really well in most climates. So I actually like both of those. Let's. Uh, we haven't talked a lot about disease or pests in the garden. You've got a really nice chapter on disease and, and pests in an organic garden, and you also have some nice photos in that chapter that shows the, the pest or shows the disease, I thought. Yeah, I think the most important thing when it comes to pests and disease is really for the gardener to come up with a routine of spraying, like you spray every 10 days or 14 days. It's more important to stick to a routine than it is, you know, using a specific spray for fungus or for pests. 
The other thing that's really important is to know what you're spraying for and only spray that plant, if that makes sense. Like you don't want to take out your neem oil or peppermint oil, which are both organic, and just because you have uh, caterpillars on your um, kales and then spray everything in the garden. So you want to kind of learn getting a routine in place, sticking with your routine, you know, pick the products you like, and then only spray the plants need to be sprayed. And sometimes as gardeners, we see the pests, we not really panic, but we want to get rid of them. So we take out everything in the kitchen sink and we just start spraying everything. You don't have to do that. Um, and it's better practice because you'll, you'll let the better beneficial insects survive if you just kind of focus on that specific pest. Now, I mean, I can talk more about organic fertilizers or more organic sprays if... if yeah, I was going um, to ask you, uh, peppermint oil is one that comes up. That That's good, I, if I'm not mistaken, for things like uh, at least repelling spider mites. Yeah, so years ago I discovered that the essential oil, so it's the it's the oil. It's not like you can't make peppermint tea and use that. But peppermint oil and rosemary oil, or a combination of both, really do a great job at managing spider mites, soft-bodied insects. And if you think about it, like when you, if you've ever opened up peppermint oil and you get the vapor in your eyes, it burns a little bit. Imagine what it does sprayed on a small insect. So it really repels them. So I use it for the undersides of my bean plants and my cucumber plants. And that's what I tend to get spider mites on here in Maryland Zone 7. But it would work for other plants. But just a regular spraying of peppermint oil every seven days makes a big difference. And it also kind of masks the scents of your plants. So sometimes the bad insects get confused and they may not find your cucumber or squash plant. So if you've ever broken a cucumber leaf off or a squash leaf off, you can smell the pheromones from the plant. So insects can do that too. So peppermint oil does great for repelling and it really does a good job at masking scents of, you know, target vegetables in your garden. And maybe you comment on some of the others that you use, um, Gary. Sure. So I like using neem oil. And if you're going to buy neem oil, you don't want to buy a lot of times, unfortunately, what you see in the big box stores. And in the bottom left corner of these, if the neem oil says hydrophobic extract of neem, it doesn't have the good stuff in it. What do I mean by that? You want to buy 100% cold-pressed neem oil with all of its components, because one of the components is called azadiractin. Short version is, is that component is what kills off caterpillars. So if you use the 100% cold-pressed neem oil, spray it on your brassica family plants, cabbages, kales, you know, that white butterfly that's everywhere that flies around, lays eggs, you get these green worms that just chew holes in there. Neem oil is great for controlling those because when they ingest it, it shuts down their system, and then in a couple of days, they die off. I also like using um, aspirin, just a plain old, you know, bare aspirin, 325 milligrams, uncoated because you're going to put it into a sprayer, but just a plain aspirin, one uh, tablet and a gallon of water. And if you spray tomato plants with it, it mimics a hormone that's inside the plant, and it tells your plant that it needs to put up its defenses, and it actually toughens up the plant so future pests and disease have a harder time getting hold and um, you know, damaging your plant. It's pretty cool. And there's a lot of great research on the salicylic acid in aspirin triggering the SAR response 
in tomato plants, and it really, really works. You're going to see your leaves at the tomato plants get a little bit darker and a little kind, a little bit thicker. Um, every 14 days, it really helps out your tomato plants. Dennis emailed uh, that people with different size gardens or different numbers of trees or so forth. How uh, how do you scale uh, fish emulsion applications? Um. Well, the mix ratio is usually on the container. So that lets you know how you mix it into a gallon of water. How much you put onto the plant, trees and shrubs and stuff like that, I would imagine they're getting a whole gallon of the mix, um, you know, maybe once a month or something like that. I'm not that familiar with bushes and trees and stuff like that. When you're going to your vegetable plants, you don't need to mix a gallon of fish emulsion and then put a gallon on every tomato plant. When they're only, you know, a foot tall, just a quick two-second splash in the root system. When they're bigger, maybe four or five feet tall, you know, maybe four or five seconds, and you're just soaking that area. You're just putting in that water-soluble fertilizer, which means the plants can use the N, the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium right away. So it's a really good question. I don't have a great answer um, but when it comes to vegetable plants, you don't need to be putting a full gallon on everything like that. It's more of a quick soak and just get that nitrogen in there every 10 to 14 days from the water soluble. Joanne in Neshkoro, let's go to you now. Thanks for calling. Hi. I have strawberry plants which get berries on and the birds eat them. But if I put floating roll cover over the top of them to keep the birds off, then the bees won't be able to pollinate the blossoms. Now, do we do strawberries need bees to pollinate blossoms? I do not know the answer to that. I would do a quick search and see if they need pollinators. Number one, um, I never had that question before. I don't know. You can use um, netting that can let the bees in and keep the birds out um, instead of a floating row cover. If you know it's true that they need pollinators. Um, the other thing, too, is, is you can leave a portion open where the bees can get in there, and it might be harder for the birds to get in. So you can kind of do a hybrid mix of covering um, most of them, but there's a space in there, and the bees will find their way into there. Maybe leave the ends open or something, huh? Yep. Yep. The birds aren't going to fly in there, Joanne, and then you're going to be able to <laughs> get the get the, ends of the bees in there to do the pollinating. I, I'd give that a try uh, for sure. Um, we have, um, I mentioned, I've mentioned a couple times flowers. And you use flowers to attract pollinators uh, and, and also predatory insects. Yeah, so it's really, I really recommend planting a lot of perennial flowers. And, you know, in many zones, They'll be able to overwinter and take the harsh freezes and they come back. That saves you some money. Um, bees love them. Pollinators love them. And I put in my garden, I actually um, have patches of basically wildflowers and flowers in there. Sometimes I put marigolds in there. But outside my garden, I have a big area that is just filled with pollinators. So I'm always trying to attract the beneficials in there. Um, I'm real cautious about, you know, spraying my fruit trees. I have about a dozen of them because the ladybugs love them. Years ago, I brought ladybugs in, and they've taken hold, and they stick around. So the more beneficials you can bring in, the better you are at getting less damage 
from pests. You know, it doesn't cure the problem, but it does make a difference. Joanne, thanks again. Let's go to Brent in uh, Chippewa Falls. Brent, what's on your mind? Hey, just passing along a hack that I accidented on here. Um, you were talking about um, putting drainage in the bottom of like five gallon buckets, if I recall correctly. Well, I found something that worked rather well after I drilled holes a little bit too far down because I didn't want to get root rot. You can control the water flow by drilling the holes in there and then finding screws that are slightly slack in there. So you can screw them in or unscrew them and leave the water drain at, at the rate you like. Or if it's going to rain out or did rain out, you can drain some out or keep it in if it's drier. And I learned it by accident by drilling the holes down too far in my buckets and having them dry out too fast. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a really good, good idea. That, I mean, that, one of the things... Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that's... So all those kind of hacks are wonderful. If you can kind of control the flow to keep water in that bottom two or three inches of your containers, especially... You can't do it with fabric pots, obviously, but with plastic containers, you can kind of support your plant through that late June, July, and August heat. In some cases, I recommend drilling the hole, not in the very bottom of the bucket, but maybe two inches up, and you could put sand or stone down there or even just kind of let the water sit. When that tomato plant or whatever you're growing gets mature enough to get down to the bottom of the bucket, that hole being up two inches on the side keeps a little reservoir. And a plant's usually strong enough to deal with root rot, but it does appreciate that that extra moisture in there. But a combination of, of using your hack or, you know, putting that hole up on the side for drainage does make a difference. Yeah, it does indeed. Brent, thank you so much for calling. Appreciate your call. Well, I really like the concept that you had of creating an edible landscape for your property, and then of course now you have a you know you have a couple of acres, but uh, the the way that describe how you've done that. So you have your traditional planting beds where we tend to you know put in bushes that don't do much, and I don't I don't know how we just accepted them over the last twenty years, <laughs> but it's the same bushes everywhere. Um, same thing with a lawn. Is you know a lawn is great if you need the space, but you don't need grass. You know, grass doesn't do much for the really the environment or the insects or anything like that. So where I might put bushes, I've dropped in, you know, two or three blueberry bushes or other fruiting bushes, which look beautiful. Um, where you might put ivy down, I put in strawberries, and I use strawberries as my ground cover where you might have, you know, some bushes coming up. So you don't have any kind of low-growing, non-edible um, ground cover. You have strawberries. And then throughout my property, I will pop in a dwarf tree, uh, fruit tree, here and there. And some of them can only get maybe 10 feet tall. Mm -hmm. so I'm using pear trees in different places and peach trees in different places and kind of just stick with that sort of mentality. Um, along my fence line in front of the driveway, where you might put in, say, marigolds, I have 12 pepper plants growing. And they're going to look beautiful against the white fence but I can also just kind of walk by and harvest them at some point. So throughout my property, aside from going to the garden, you can kind of just wander through different places and you can find food to eat. Um, the other thing that's really cool to use are clumping varieties of blackberries. They don't get all these runners and take over a space. So you can put clumping blackberries in different parts of your yard and, you know, have tons of blackberries. They do really, really well. 
and it really looks attractive too. Yeah, I, I I like it. I mean, part of gardening for me is is the planting and growing. I love that. And then it's the harvesting and eating. But I also like just kind of walking around and seeing kind of what I've created, how things are growing, listening to the birds, checking out the bees. And if you create an edible landscape, you're also creating a landscape that's edible for lots of different um, pollinators, mm. for different animals and birds. And it, it's just a, it's a wonderful experience. Yeah, it it uh, it is indeed, and it's been uh, wonderful actually talking with you uh, today, Gary. I hope the I hope the book's been doing well. The book is doing well. Um, it's I think it just passed its first year. Um, I enjoy it. Um, oh, oh, let me rephrase that. When I wrote the book, it was a lot of work, and I'm like, I am never going to write a book again. <laughs> but then when it was done. I was like, this is wonderful. And most of the pictures in there are of my garden, and I took a lot of them. So it was really, you know, enjoyable. But I am now in works to start a second book. So I'm looking forward to doing that. And it's going to be on that theme of edible landscaping, which I really, really enjoy. Well, I want to thank you again, Gary. And we'll have you back when that book comes out for sure. Thanks so much for being with us today. Appreciate it. Certainly. I had a wonderful time. Have a great day. Gary Polarczyk, uh, and his book is titled The Modern Homesteader, Growing Self-Sufficiency in Any Size Backyard. And again, he's got a couple of great uh, uh, YouTube channels, uh, one The Rusted Garden and the other My First Vegetable Garden, so you could take a look at them as well. Just looking ahead to Monday, our physical therapists are back. Uh, to talk about exercising in hot weather and, of course, take your physical therapy questions as well. That's Monday from 11 to 12.30. In the meantime, I hope you have a great weekend, but please stay with us. Lots in store on the Ideas Network. I'm Larry Mueller.